Nerds and geeks, hold on to your seats because it's about to go down. Welcome to Nerdorama, the voice of the nerd nation. I'm Mo Kelly, he's Tawala Sharp, and together we bring you your daily dose of nerd news, analysis, and conversations with the best and brightest of the nerdverse. Let me tell you about Rome, the new YA novel from critically acclaimed, award-winning author Tiffany D. Jackson, which takes its inspiration from the R. Kelly case and other incidents of abusive behavior in which girls are victimized and sadly not believed when they come forward and try to tell their story. Tiffany D. Jackson, it's very nice to speak to you. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you so much for having me. There are predators in every community, every ethnicity, every economic strata, and by extension, victims there as well. That said, what did you notice specifically about how girls and women in the R. Kelly cases, plural, had been disbelieved for literally decades as opposed to women in other cases? Um, The first thing I noticed is, you know, the extreme victim blaming. Um, And that's specifically, you know, uh, that happened particularly around after the documentary aired and how there was so much just kind of like, oh, the girls knew what they were doing. You know, they were only there for the money, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, looking, you know, as an outsider, I kept thinking to myself, like, but you're talking about girls. You're literally talking about children. And it doesn't matter if a child thinks she knows what she's doing. The adult in the room knows better and he knew better. And so we should hold adults accountable about them blaming children who do not have a full understanding of the scope of their actions. Those are very complex issues, and that kind of leads me to my next question. How does one tackle the issues of sexual abuse or other forms of abuse in a YA novel specifically when inherently such themes are complicated and complex in their own right? I mean, of course, this is a young adult novel, and I think we oftentimes grossly underestimate what kids can handle if, you know, presented correctly. Um, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this novel is I really wanted to sort of lay out and contextualize how girls can be groomed, manipulated, and lured into abusive relationships. I wanted to really give it more of an experience so that kids can really truly absorb it, understand it, and then walk out in the rest of the world, not forgetting the story, but also becoming, you know, empathetic and more compassionate people to hopefully, you know, in the real world, help victims who, generally speaking, are rarely believed. And now one of the reasons why I did want to start with kids is because it's very hard to even get adults to change their thinking, to understand that the ideas of critically calling black girls specifically, like, oh, you're being grown or too fast, you know, how that plays with their self-esteem and their psyche and the way that this sort of, generally speaking, how we have over-sexualized, you know, young black girls at a very early age versus, you know, their counterparts. It's unfair how black girls are held at such a different standard than everyone else in the world. You may not know this, but part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you is I used to work in the music industry for different 
record labels for about 15 years. And when I read that Grown tells the story of Enchanted Jones, an aspiring singer struggling in her role as the lone black girl in high school, after meeting R&B artist Corey Fields, her dream of being a singer takes flight, but quickly turns into a nightmare as Corey wants to control her every move with rage and consequences. Take it from there, but I want you to take it from there and understand you're talking to someone who knows implicitly that's true. That happens more than people are willing to admit. Absolutely. I um, so I used to work in uh, music television as well, too. So I only saw, you know, not the depth of probably what you saw, but I've definitely seen situations where I'm like, oh, this doesn't seem okay. And I'm an adult saying this and saying, like, why is this child here? Or why is this child in the green room? You know, these adult men. And why is he talking to her? There are so many situations like this. And it's unfortunate that it happens so often that, yes, we we tend to focus on the, we should focus on the perpetrator himself, but we should also talk about the machine around that perpetrator as well, too. You know, the labels and managers and road managers and agents and bodyguards who all sort of help in these situations. And I wanted to sort of bring all of that to light in this book, because I think that that's where it gets very complicated, where people start to say like, oh, well, why didn't the girls just leave? And I'm like, have you ever truly been trapped anywhere to Mm -hmm. know what it's like to not be able to leave? As I was saying, working in the music industry, I wrote about R. Kelly calling him out a good 15 years before the documentary. I say that to say, has the landscape, because of the Me Too movement, because of the incarceration of Bill Cosby, has anything changed from where you sit in a positive direction? I definitely think that there's some positive movement, especially with the Me Too movement. More people are speaking up. More people are becoming brave and actually saying what happened to them and more people are actually believing them as well too. And they are fighting for them and they, you know, people are getting canceled left and right. And I think that that is in a positive manner. And I think the fact that, you know, we have more people behind this movement is really truly helped to shape it as one would say. I think that having more voices adds to the conversation just makes our voices louder. And I think that's all we need. We just need to be as loud as possible all the time. And I know it can be incredibly exhausting, especially for victims. But we know we're doing it for the good and, the you know, the future of young victims. Have you given any thought to the story after the story? Enchanted Jones, she's an aspiring singer. We get to see that part of her story and her coming of age, if you will, in a life sense. Have you thought about telling her story maybe 15, 20 years down the line, showing the woman that she's turned into and what what happens to her in life at that point? Yeah, that's a great idea. Sort of like an epilogue of some sort. Right. Sort of, um, yeah, because I do, I mean, and I, I do also stand here as, you know, a victim as well, too. My first boyfriend was 22 when I was 15, and I truly did not understand what I was doing. I didn't realize that what, our relationship, as secretive as it was, was wrong until I was actually an adult and started to unpack that. Uh, so one of the reasons why I do come forward with this story and also my own personal story is I do want to be somewhat of, you know, a shining light of hope that, you know, you are not your mistakes. You are not what you're done. You are what you will become. And I definitely can attest the fact that, you know, from the time I was 15, I graduated from college. 
from grad school. I had a thriving career in television, and now um, I'm a full-time published author. There's nothing you cannot do. You can step out of that situation and still have a fulfilling life. Very quickly, Tiffany D. Jackson, how can people reach out to you on social media? So you can reach me on Instagram and on Facebook at Write in BK, that's W-R-I-T-E-I-N-B-K. And you can also find me on my website, writeinbk.com. Award-winning author Tiffany D. Jackson is the author of the new YA novel, Grown. I think it's important. I think it's necessary. And it's definitely going to be impactful. Much success to you, Tiffany D. Jackson. And thank you for coming on the program today. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to the Bipal, the only online comic book review column guaranteed to test negative for COVID-19. My name is Hannibal Taboo. You can find everything you'd like to know about me at H-A-N-N-I-B as in bounce, A-L-T-A-B-U dot com. Or on social media as Hannibal Taboo, that's Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Plurk, inside of an aquarium that you visited when you were a kid, and everywhere that you want to be. These reviews are for books that came out on September 30th, 2020. There are four sections to the buy pile. First, we have the titular buy pile itself, which is for books that are so good they demand to be purchased in the moment, or they're from a series that's had three purchase-worthy issues in a row that will maintain their spot until it does three not-purchase-worthy issues in a row. Unfortunately, there is nothing on the buy pile this week. Yikes. Moving on, the next section of our reviews is called Honorable Mentions, which is for books that were good, but maybe not quite good enough to get the money out of your actual pocket or papoose or wallet or whatever you've got going on. Starting out there, we have Chew Number 3, CHU, from Image Comics with the creative team of John Lehman and Dan Boltwood. With equal parts criminal and the vibe from HBO's run, this issue cranks up the stakes for its ne'er-do-well protagonist, Saffron Chu, while doubling down on the bloodshed. If you're a little squeamish, this issue's gore-heavy panels might be a bit much for you. The gag is this. Saffron has a boyfriend named Eddie Mole, who is literally nothing but trouble. If you ever play Grand Theft Auto Vice City, you'll see some problematic parallels with Lance Vance as a catalog for plot developments and an annoyance constantly causing needless risk for the protagonist. Mole is literally the source of every problem here, but Saffron has an equal share of responsibility because she goes along with it. Saffron is an odd factor in her largely superpowered family as a clearly criminal mind with great moral flexibility. Her whole family has food-based superpowers. It's super weird. This gives her a kind of Dr. Afro vibe as she stumbles through the mayhem and malfeasance, which is comedic in its presentation, despite the clearly noirish elements herein. John Lehman maintains the tone of the prequel-slash-sequel series Chew, C-H-E-W, with his scripting here, maintaining a snappy pacing and equally snappy wordplay. Dan Boltwood's artwork brilliantly captures the mischief in the mind of Saffron, the suspicion of her brother Tony, and the hapless frustration of twin sister Sage. It's a little goofier than your average crime comic and nowhere near as imaginative as his predecessor series, despite that series being set at a later point on a shared timeline. That cognitive dissonance can be challenging in some ways. Still, this is an enjoyable, if tonally unusual, light tragedy, so that rating is honorable mention. Next up, we have Fantastic Four number 24 from Marvel Comics with the creative team of Dan Slott, Paco Medina, Jesus Aburtov, and Joe Caramagna. This story encapsulates the basics of Marvel's first family while setting them into the larger fictional continuity. The core value of this intellectual property is family, and Dan Slott's script really nails the close personal connections between characters. The issue hits both all elements of the modern day while getting into nostalgic moments so steeped in the zeitgeist of the property's creation that you'd half expect to see civil rights protests in the background. Or is that today? It's really hard to tell. 
The FF and Associated Intimates are gathering to celebrate the Rocky hero Ben Grimm and his blind wife Alicia finalizing the adoption of two extraterrestrial children, a Cree boy and a Skrull girl. This gives some great moments of Reed and his daughter Valeria bonding over absentmindedly losing track of time due to science. Ben and Alicia adapting to parenting. Sue forced into the fretting housefrau role, which is kind of not really cool to her because she's so much than that, but whatever. And Johnny questioning his life choices. The instigating incident is oldest son Franklin when he gets a cool ride home from the hidden mutant island of Krakoa. That throws Johnny into his Anakin-level immaturity and looking into a flashback story. The visual storytelling from Paco Medina, Jesus Aburtov, and Joe Caramagna offers great action scenes and emotional clarity. The wonderful obliviousness of Reed and Valeria's two kindred spirits was very enjoyable, while the impulsiveness of Johnny and self-doubt of guest star Bobby Drake all came through clearly. About all you could say that went wrong was that for all the struggle and conflict, very little of it mattered. AIM goons doing a product demo, Red Ghost and the Super Apes, even Puppet Master wielding Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne, all while Johnny Storm sat in a clearly segregated soda shop, which is not bad to depict, but it does set this in a certain time, effectively. It's all kind of frivolous and confectionary. Not for people whose property were destroyed by Conquesta and his mighty Mecha Mace. Really, that's what they call this throwaway villain. Anyway, of course, but those people are not examined in detail either. Oh, and there's a very pretty-looking Fortnite-related backup story that's wholly unimportant and easily passed by. If you love the FF or this kind of wholesome family adventuring, this issue will be right up your alley. If you're looking for something deeper, this might not scratch that ish, so the rating is honorable mention. The next section of our review is called the Meth Pile. It's for books that the good and bad qualities of it kind of wash themselves out in a pastiche of forgettable energy or, you know, there was things that were great and things that were problematic that just, you know, kind of ended up in a dead heat. I'm very disappointed to say there we have starting out Ludocrats number five from Image Comics with creative team of Kieran Gillen, Jim Rossignol, Jeff Stokely, Tamara Bonvalon, and Clayton Cowles. Hmm. Well, this is the end of the wildly ambitious miniseries about a world of mad, whimsical aristocrats sworn to fight dullness in any possible form. In this issue, characters make gags that are callbacks to things they did before. The art dynamically takes you through a trial that's more interesting than the one the legions of superheroes sat through. We'll get to that in a minute. Even as much of it is talking heads in nine-panel grids. In this issue, the protagonist is put on trial for crimes against his brother, and then surprises happen, and the issue ends. This review is weird because the issue itself is weird in a way that's both hard to quantify and hard to accept. The plot comes to a big kind of ideological corner and finds itself surrounded by paint. From there, things get much more Gwenpool than a book with so many meta moments needed. Hello, Jamie McKelvey. And then just stopped. The difficulty level setting for this series has always been scary. A debut issue of such dazzling wonder that it set the bar too high, only to leave wax wings available to try and maintain or surpass those heights. Despite some great moments, the landing is more stumbled and graceful, and while the visual standards remain excellent, this is a drastically less imaginative sojourn into this realm, an attempt at a double-blind ruse that didn't pay off in the final analysis. It's frustrating, because when this series was good, it was virtually diaphanous. Here, it just kind of surrendered to its page count, even literally having characters trying to escape through the credits. But to what end? It wasn't boring, but it wasn't a triumph of whimsy or wonder. In the end, it's just over. So that rating would be meh. Also here we have Legion of Superheroes number 9 from DC Comics with a creative team. Oh, this is big. All right, brace yourself. There's a lot of people in this book. Ryan Michael Bendis, David Marquez. Ryan Souk, Wade Von Grawbadger, Joe Quinones, Mike Grell, Ivan Reyes, Joe Prado, Nick Darrington, James Herron, John Romita Jr., Klaus Jansen, Nicola Scott, Arthur Adams, Jim Chung, Gary Frank, Tula Lote, Riley Rosmo, Jean Nguyen Yang, Kevin Nolan, Michael Fifth, Jenny Friesen, Emanuela Lupacino, Mitch Gerards, Jordi Belair, and Dave Sharp. Wow. The facts of these. 
Most of this issue is comprised of people yelling at each other than video clips of things that, in story, happened beforehand. There's one very brief moment of action which is undercut by the weirdly immature behavior of the character in question, who ironically was more mature in his televised appearance. And that's being damned by faint praise. For this issue, there's a laundry list of amazing artists who have been brought in to show, well, not a lot, honestly. Yes, it's fantastic to see the Legion through the hands of Arthur Adams and Mike Grell and Nicola Scott and so many other amazing names, briefly. The depictions here are like a clip episode on a TV show, intended to not really tell a story, but hope you'll infer one from stuff that already happened. It almost never works on TV, and it doesn't work here. There are some useful bits of information, though. Bouncing Boy has a doctorate. Monster Boy is named after comics journalist turned business veteran Arun Singh. Block is a cop assigned by the United Plants to be a legionnaire. Timberwolf's whole planet died while he was leveling up to protect it. Invisible Kid comes from a plant that, quote, exists on a different part of the visual spectrum than yours. Dr. Fate is respected as the holder of the ancient knowledge, ignoring, rather, the six-armed person underneath the helm of Naboo. Huh, I wonder if that's got a Star Wars reference there. Anyway, sorry. All that's fun to know and finally puts some meat on the narrative bones of many of the players. Unfortunately, ignoring every high school writing teacher, it all comes out told to you, not shown to you. There's a very sad play-the-hits moment that seems desperate to recapture the past glories, a needlessly conservative concept that holds back so many comics. The antagonist here is Process, like watching the Senate scenes of the Star Wars prequels for like another hour. The new ideas here are framed as skewed looks at older ones, and that's exhausting, no matter how many superstar artists you throw at it. So the rating here would be meh. The last section of our reviews is called No, Just No, and it's for books that are abjectly terrible and should not be purchased under any circumstances. There, I'm sorry to say, we have Avengers number 36 from Marvel Comics with the creative team of Jason Aaron, Javier Garon, Jason Keith, and Corey Pettit. The escalation of Moon Knight into some kind of world-ending power continues in its baffling inexorability, despite any logic or sanity that might hope to stop it. Most of the issue, Mark Spector, Moon Knight's legal name for anyone who missed it, trades punches with T'Challa the Black Panther, which on surface sounds insane. T'Challa is a Captain America-level power capable of bench-pressing 800 pounds. This isn't until you remember that the ancient Egyptian moon god Khonsu has empowered someone from a different tradition to be more impressive as his Moon Knight. There's some weird sidesteps with the new watchful presence on the moon, a weird interlude with Iron Man and Captain Marvel. Do they hate each other? Like each other? Their whole vibe together is off-putting. Look, it's hard coming up with actual villains for heroes to fight. Actual real threats big enough to warrant the entire Avengers roster, which is now a murderer's row of powers and talents. That's fine. Korvac, the Skrulls, the Kree, the Celestials, it's all been done. Sure, you turn to heroes, but shoot, even the ones with groovy visual design are jobbers, so you level them up with implausible means. Whatever. That's what they pay you to do, that's what you do. It's part of why there are so many evil Batman and not, you know, actual new villains. The last page twist, however, it just doesn't add up. Beyond the wholly implausible way things haven't added up before, that is. This dips into a whole new level of shenanigans. Like Megan the Stallion suddenly breaking out and performing the entirety of Phantom of the Opera all the parts. It's getting into somebody else's lane in a way that doesn't fit. If anybody who had this power before shared a common thread, and you're in polyester, chances are, this ain't for you to go colonize, baby. Nonetheless, here we are. The art team does their best to wrangle this messy narrative, creating visceral fight scenes. The panel with somebody punching themselves was actually really good. But it's just too much. Let's just get done with this and pretend it never happened. So the rating here is no just no. With no actual books that were worth purchasing, that made this kind of a rough week. But, you know, it was kind of a rough week all the way around, wasn't it? I'm elated, as always, to be here alongside my good friends Mo and Tawala. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to you, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Y'all take care and be safe out there.
Hey guys, Mo Kelly here. The new daily Nerdorama podcast is featured on iHeartRadio. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast feed to get your daily dose of nerd news. Also available on iTunes, Spreaker, and all the top podcasting apps. It's free and perfect for everyone in your nerd family. Nerdorama is produced by Tuala Sharp and continues to be a segment on the Mo Kelly Show. Weekends on KFI Los Angeles. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nerdorama News. Until next time, keep it comic. <laughs>